You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining us, as always, from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, it's Ben Folks. Ben, it's cold out there. It is cold out there and snowy now. Winter has come. I notice you have not shoveled off your sidewalk as you are bound to do by city law. Oh, hell no. I mean, the snow just arrived today. They can't, they can't be that big of sticklers, can they? Well, that's not the old man Dundas I know. The old man Dundas I know would be out there not only shoveling his walk, but his neighbor's walks if they don't get to it fast enough. And then he'd find a not-so-subtle way to make them feel guilty about it. That would be a pretty sweet move. God. Hey, what's up, neighbor? I just shoveled your walk. Notice you hadn't done it. That's city law. Anywho, good to see you. I hope you had a good weekend. I hope it snows again, so I get the chance to do that. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think you have to worry there. Maybe I was waiting for some enterprising young youth, neighborhood youth, to come around and, and yeah, I would you, pay him a shiny nickel. You to, pay him two bits to, to <laughs> shovel your walk? <laughs> it could be. It could be. Uh, it was colder in certain parts of Montana this week than it was at the same time in the South Pole. I can actually believe that, even though I've never been to the South Pole. That's the kind of thing that makes you wonder what the fuck we're doing living up here. You know, but once you get past single-digit temperatures, it's just cold. It doesn't matter anymore. That's true. Just damn cold. That's true. And you know what? I, I always found it was colder in New York when, we, when I lived there, uh, just because of the humidity. <laughs> here and, in Montana, we have a dry cold. And because of how empty your heart was. That too. That too. And, and because you fucking have to walk everywhere. That's right. So that just makes it feel colder. Uh, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you by GoDaddy. Right now, GoDaddy is offering exclusive deals for Co-Main Event Podcast listeners. If you've got a website or just website needs, you can go to GoDaddy.com and enter the promo code EVENT or click the GoDaddy banner from our website, which still is not there, but it will be soon. Uh, and you will get one new or transfer.com domain name for only $1.99 for the first year of registration uh, with an additional $9.99 uh, for each additional year. Some limitations apply, so check the website for that. But Ben, this is like if you wanted to move your eBay business where you try to sell old VHS cassette tapes, maybe you could get your own website for that. Yeah, you, you've got like some VHS types of WrestleMania 6 and you want to... There's people out there who want you're to buy trying that. to you're trying to sell those old VCR tapes that you got free with your subscription to Sports yeah. Illustrated yeah. when you were like 10 years old. Some of those people might be sitting right here talking on this podcast. <laughs> Three rounds as usual this week for the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, Mark Hunt and Bigfoot Silva, you enormous, heavy-handed, adorable zombies, you what a pleasant surprise. And in round number two, Mauricio Shogun Hua Hua is back. Except, you know, no, not, maybe not. Not really. Not Probably really. not. And in round number three, the Team Alpha Male Invitational Mixed Martial Arts Tournament airs live on Fox this weekend. Who will win a championship trophy twice their size? Uriah Faber, Joseph Benavidez, Chad Mendez, Danny Castillo, Daniel LaRusso. Actual trophy may not exist. Did you know Daniel LaRusso is not? He's the kid from... Karate Kid. You can't say he won't show up. No, he might. All-Valley Karate Tournament? All that plus Master Tweet Theater, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But right now, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. 
The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Jeremy Ray. He writes, With the terrific main event and the Shogun KO, it feels like Julie Kedzie's retirement was kind of overlooked by the media. She was a pioneer in women's MMA, and it's kind of a bummer that she's not getting a better send-off. Being journalists who have no doubt interviewed or spent time around Julie, what would you say are some of her career-defining moments, and do you think that the best is yet to come with her behind the broadcast booth or shooting those awesomely uncomfortable Invicta face-off interviews? Uh, yeah, you know, Julie Kedzie kind of announced her retirement via Twitter uh, and did it sort of late at night after this, this uh, most recent UFC event when I think a lot of... Uh, media types were otherwise entertained, probably trying to get their stories done so they could go to bed. Uh, but, uh, she, you know, the emailer is right. I've, I've never interviewed Julie or, or spent any time around her, but just with my interactions with her via the social media and, uh, seeing her on TV and reading the stuff, uh, uh about her, it kind of seems like maybe we wish they were all like Julie Kedzie. Yeah. You know, uh, and I know this question came in before my story on Julie Kedzie today when she kind of explained in more depth and detail her retirement. Uh, that This came in before that was posted. So uh, in fairness, we have done a little bit more on Julie Kedzie. And I thought that her explanation when I was talking to her, uh, apparently she had a hard time getting back from Australia. When I talked to her last night, uh, they got stuck in L.A. because of ice storms in the, the southwest uh, and it sounded like uh, she got stuck in a hotel in L.A. And when you when you have a, a long travel like that that just doesn't go well, she did what anybody does, and you just hit the hotel bar. Uh, and so we, we talked for a little while about wait, why wait, wait, she retired. Wait, are, are you saying that she had been drinking when you spoke with her? She might have. She might have had a little, a couple cocktails. Wow. Okay. But was handling it well. Hashtag lifestyle piece. Yeah. <laughs> well. Her explanation, I thought, for why she decided to retire and why she said, you know, she made that decision before the fight and said she had been thinking about it for a while. And I think that there's a lot of fighters in this boat where they're kind of toward the end of their career, especially female fighters. Um, and then this opportunity came to fight in the UFC. And it was, well, even if it wasn't their weight class for some of them or even if they felt like they were kind of near the end of their careers, how do you turn that down? That's the kind of thing you've been waiting for your whole career. So. Uh, she went ahead and did it and thought she was going to win this fight, still thinks that she did deserve to win that fight, um, but said that you know she kind of could tell when she was thinking stuff like, well, when I retire, I'm going to do this. you know. And when she realized, like, maybe that's not such a great sign that I'm starting to think about what my retirement, post-retirement life will be like. Uh, one quote that I think is uh, really interesting uh, – explaining her retirement. I started to realize that so many of the things that motivate people, I just don't feel the same way about it. Like when Ronda Rousey says she'll die in the cage, I think, I don't want to die. I just want to fight well. But maybe that's what I'm missing. Maybe that edge has been kind of smoothed down on me. I don't think it's a lack of passion and I don't think it's a lack of crazy because I am kind of crazy. I think, I don't know, maybe I've just worked through my issues. Maybe I've just worked my issues out now. Oh, wow. That makes it sound healthy. Yeah. Like she's doing exa exactly the right thing. And like sometimes we like to say about some fighters where you talk to them and decide that they are too reasonable to be a fighter. Mm -hmm. It kind of seems like it's that has always seemed the case to me with Julie Kedzie because she is really smart and really reasonable uh, and has that ability to be very honest with herself and analytical. Uh, and seems like maybe here's an instance where a fighter did the math on it themselves and decided that they're kind of too reasonable to be a fighter. And I get what she's saying. She also talks a little bit about how coming from like a more old school martial arts background where you're doing it kind of for yourself. You want to get as good as you can, do as well as you can. Uh, 
and uh, feel good about yourself and go home. And it's not like I want to crush everybody else's skulls, which some people seem to feel. And I mean, good for her for kind of recognizing that gap between how she feels and how she might have to feel in order to make the the sacrifices and do the things to yourself that people have to do in this sport. Uh, and you know, knowing when to get out, getting out while she still loves it, and not staying in it until you know the absolute bitter end. Now, was part of the reason that they had trouble getting back to America because they got detained in Australia at customs because Greg Jackson was yelling stuff? <laughs> you know, it turns out. Just uh, kidding. I asked her about that. Uh, Way to get your ID out, Julie Kenzie. <laughs> uh, especially the just kidding one, which seemed kind of odd. Apparently, those are all, if not exactly codes, then things that Greg has worked out with the fighters where he, he knows that they know what he's what he means. Oh. Yeah, uh, and stuff that they've been doing throughout the entire training camp. I love me some Greg Jackson. I know. God, if I could get him to shout at me, come over to my house and shout at me every morning, I'd be like three or four times as successful as I am. I think a uh, friend of the show, Danny Boy Downs, put it pretty well in a tweet uh, during that fight when, when Greg Jackson could be heard throughout the fight shouting stuff. Uh, and it was something along the lines of, if we all had dads as supportive as Greg Jackson, MMA probably wouldn't exist as a sport. I saw that. That was good. Uh, yeah, uh, Julie Kedzie seems like one of the good ones. And in a way, I think you kind of have to feel bad for some of these uh, women's fighters who have been around a little bit longer because they spent the bulk of their careers uh, kind of toiling in obscurity before the UFC picked it up. Uh, and that and that's too bad for a lot of them. Uh, it's it's kind of like if you fought at the really early UFCs and got out of it before anybody paid you any money. It's uh, even worse than that, I think, because at least back then you could be like, you know, you got this old school, you know, head butts and blood and guts era thing attached to you that, that everybody claims to like more than they actually liked at the time. I think with women's MMA, it's also that, you know, people people were way more against that than they ever were about men's MMA, I think. And it was, I mean, you had to be doing it because you really wanted it to. Because it's not like anybody thought better of you for it. It's not like, you you know, the, the at least the, the male fighters were like, well, I was picking chicks up at the bar afterwards. And the female fighters, you know, it doesn't really work the same way in the other direction. They're doing it solely because they want to. They're losing money most of the time to do it back then. And there were really few shows that you could do it on. And it was a pain in the ass to even try and find an opponent. Like, there were so many reasons not to do it for a woman who started in that era. And you're right. It is kind of sad that now that there's some money to be made and you can kind of get famous doing it and get more of those Fast and the Furious movies. Uh, yeah, no, those are done. They're not doing any more of those. I would Come on. <laughs> like that, like those people would let the death of one person stop that, that movie franchise. All right, I don't well, let's, it. let's move on here. Second question comes to us from Kent Carter this week. He writes, so there's a competitor on Tough China who has never even sparred before. Discuss this shit. Uh, ben. <laughs> now, this is the kind of question I like. Succinct? Well, to the we, point? We got a few of them coming, so I think you're, 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 you'll be pleased. Uh, when this uh, first broke on Twitter a couple days ago or last night or something, I get confused with my days. Uh, I got that sundowner. Yeah, they all, they all run together on you. Uh, uh, it seemed like it couldn't possibly be true, uh, but upon further investigation, it seems like maybe it is true. Maybe there's a yoga instructor on the, uh, the cast of, of Tough China who maybe has honestly never sparred before showing up to the, to the Tough Gym. You know, I wish I could say that that surprises me, 
But it does. I mean, I think it's kind of fitting with what we've seen from the UFC and some of these new markets. Like, have you taken a look at that card in Singapore? No, I have not, because I will be skipping it, <laughs> just as I will be skipping all cards that air exclusively on an internet website that I have to pay for. You mean the digital network? Yes, the internet website where the UFC will ask me to pay a subscription fee to view its worst content. You know, I was thinking about that while watching uh, the prelims for this Fight Night 33 uh, on Friday because, you know, that it turned into a good event, but it didn't start that way. No. I, if you noticed uh, the complete mismatch between Alex Garcia and Ben Wall, uh, your boy Christoph Jotko uh, beating Bruno Santos, uh, some of those early fights, you know, it's guys you never really heard of before and then – while watching it, and either they're complete mismatches or just crappy fights, uh, while watching it, you're thinking, so wait, this is what you're going to ask me to pay for on your digital network next year? This stuff? Man, I knew we were in trouble with Christoph Jocko when I looked him up uh, the week of the fight and watched his highlight video on YouTube, and the first three highlights were all takedowns. <laughs> That's not a good sign, man. And, I, you know, I love a ground-based fighter, but... Those ain't highlights. You know what I mean? <laughs> were they at least slams or anything? No, they were just like one of them was like kind of a cool trip thing that he did. But like if that's the best you got, if that's that's leading off your yes, highlight. That's tape? where the guy's like, we got to put our best shit first. <laughs> and he goes with that. Whew, man, I don't know. But Ben, you know, I wrote about this uh, on the on Bleacher Report this week. One of the things that I think is liberating about this new UFC digital network uh, is that the UFC is really kind of overtly, shockingly overtly, I think, sending us the message that we don't have to watch this stuff. Because when you already have four different tiers of live events that you put on television, when you've got pay-per-view events, right. Fox Network shows, FS1 shows, FS2 shows, shows on FS0, uh, Crystal Fox, Diet Fox, all the Fox channels. FS Clear. Uh, when you've already got that and then you take other shows and you're like, you know what? These aren't even that good. We're going to put these <laughs> only on the internet. You are, you have just held up a giant sign to me that says, don't watch this stuff. And to me, that's awesome. Like that is the best possible case scenario for the UFC going to like 50 events next year is for them to take a bunch of them and tuck them away on the internet in a place where I am not obligated or even really asked to watch them. Well, what happens when some fighter graduates from those shows and makes it all the way to a Facebook prelim on a Fox Sports Well, he's Two made show. it at that point, brother. He has made it. No, well, that's the weird thing about this thing is, is that I, at this point, it's all speculative. We don't really know that much about it. But I think that the most interesting thing about this digital network and the and the uh, the huge increase of potential UFC shows next year over the already huge increase that we've seen over the last four or five years, the most interesting thing about it will be seeing how they strike any kind of balance between uh, – Guys who are, are coming up at these regional shows in Europe and China, like, what are they going to do with these guys who are good? And then, like, as you said, graduate to actual UFC shows like uh, it's going to it's going to be a real trick, I think, to, like, balance all of that and make sure that if some guy comes up and fights for the title that that people know who he is. Yeah, well, like, fights for the title. Wait, which title? The Facebook prelim title. OK, or the digital network title. Yes, the TV title. Yeah. Got like, it. Well, if they had one of those, throw a belt on there and I'll think about buying your subscription. Yeah. Don't, booking, booking 101. Do not 
send the UFC that message. <laughs> That's what we need is more champions. We've already got a world champion fighting on Fox this, this weekend. Uh, next question this week comes from Tang Cow. He writes, so Ben Askren signs with 1FC, and then in all caps, are you fucking kidding me? Discuss, yo. Another another succinct question. People are starting to figure it out. Yeah. Okay. We talked about this a little bit uh, when you were over at my house last week, and I think your your position, if I'm not mistaken, is that this is a fuck you to the UFC. Well, and Ben Askren confirmed that today on the MMA hour. Oh, did he? Yeah. Ariel just flat out asked him, did you sign with 1FC because the UFC said that you should sign with World Series of Fighting? And Ben Askren said yes. He was like, I'm a guy who has a hard time doing what people tell him to do. And like, if you're my boss and you tell me to do something, well, yeah, I'm going to do it because I work for you. But now I'm not even your employee. I don't even work for you. And you're going to try to tell me what to do. No, I'm not going to do that. That also, uh, I talked about this a little bit in my Twitter mailbag last week. It would seem like if you wanted, if your goal say as Dana White was to, uh, severely weaken Ben Askren's negotiating position, that would be a pretty good way to do it. Right. Cause Bellator has already said that they don't want him back. Uh, Dana White saying, I'm not going to sign him to the UFC. He should go sign with World Series of Fighting. Basically, he should only go to this one place. Like, if he wants to talk to us in the future, he should sign with this one place, which then, when they go to make you an offer, means they can lowball the hell out of you, right? Because it's kind of been put out there in public that you don't have any other options unless you decide to go over the option where you fly off to Singapore or whatever. And from what I hear, 1FC pays pretty good money, right? So maybe, you know, that factors into it too. Plus, I don't have a hard time believing that Ben Askren is the type of dude that doesn't like to be told what to do. So then he goes over there. And a lot of people are going to say, well, there's nobody over there for you to fight where you can actually prove that, you know, you belong in the UFC or that you're the best welterweight in the world. Although I don't know if that situation would have been too much improved if he had that World Series of Fighting. I mean, if you want to poke holes in the guy's accomplishments you could do it totally easily if he went over there and beat john fitch and josh berkman and whoever you know it's not like you would be forced to respect him then if you didn't respect what he had already done in bellator yeah and if you take the guy at his word what he has said at this point both on twitter and now with his appearance on the mma hour today uh he his goal was to be the number one welterweight fighter in the world and he felt like his meeting with the UFC went really good. He thought that they were going to offer him a contract and then was sort of surprised when they called his manager later that night and said that they weren't interested. Uh, and to take him at his word, that sort of like dashed his goals, like made it so that he knew that he would never get the opportunity, or at least not right now, won't get the opportunity to be the best, the number one fighter in the world. And once he found that out, he said, well, fuck it. Who's offering me the most money? Yeah. Well, a reasonable position. Yeah, pretty much. And and so that led him to that and his distaste for being told what to do led him to sign with one uh, FC. And as far as we know, that might have been the best financial deal. Uh, and then Helwani asked him who he's going to fight in one FC. And Ben Askren said, I sure as shit don't know. <laughs> you know, is it me or has the just public question about where Ben Askren is going to go and his response to it and all that back and forth since his last fight in Bellator. Has that done more to increase Ben Askren's stock in your eyes than anything else? Because I say yes. Yeah, I think Now so. he seems I mean, pretty awesome. I think it's, it's done more to in, at least increase his visibility. I think he's always been a guy who has really said what he felt and not held back or, or, or lied 
to people about what he thought. And I feel like especially today's appearance on Ariel's show was really kind of a glimpse of what might have been because, you know, you can poke holes in his, his fighting style and say that he's boring and stuff like that. But the guy is actually a pretty compelling interview. And I feel like uh, his ability to cut a promo and to kind of do this thing that American wrestlers often do where they seem really sincere and really earnest. But at the same time, they're talking about how they're going to whip everybody's ass. Uh, I think he could have done that pretty successfully in the UFC. I think he could have been, uh, you know, a lightning rod for controversy and would have been one of these guys that people would want to buy a pay-per-view to see him get beat up and yeah. he would be extremely maddening for that uh that subset of of ufc fans that that thinks wrestlers are boring because he flat out says maybe i'm one-dimensional but no one has been able to stop that one dimension yet and so i, I mean i think he could have done well i think he could have been a a reasonably bankable heel so to speak and you know now he's going to go over to asia and who knows what'll happen beat up phil baroni who knows well you know i think that though uh that position too that where the UFC likes to do this where they'll say about somebody well you don't know if that guy can hang with the best because he hasn't fought in the UFC he hasn't been tested against UFC guys but then it becomes as I dubbed it uh, while talking to someone on Twitter the Askren paradox where you tell him uh, you haven't proven yourself because you haven't beaten UFC guys and therefore you're not worthy of being in the UFC. Well, how can he prove it if you don't give him a shot? I mean if he hasn't earned the, the shot and Christoph Jotko has well, Jesus fucking Christ man yeah, in a way, you would have liked to be present at that interview where Dana White said that he didn't think that Ben Askren had had accomplished enough to be in the UFC welterweight division because then you would you could have said accomplished more or less you think than uh, Amir Sadala. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Anyway, let's do one more question and then then we gotta we gotta get going with this thing. Last question this week comes from Philip Hanna. He writes, "Pat Barry is too fucking small for heavyweight." Discuss. Pat Barry has some problems. The problem, though, is not that he's too small for heavyweight. He would be too small for light heavyweight, too. Uh, and he'd be too easily taken down. And as we saw this weekend, I think, too easily knocked out. Yeah. That was the most frightening part, because it's not a surprise to see Pat Barry get taken down and mounted by somebody, because we know that that's the weakest part of his game. But uh, when Soa Palele got on top of him and threw, you know, what I would say is a, a quick barrage of punches, none of them looking particularly devastating, and then the next thing you knew, Pat Barry was asleep. That's when I started to wonder that maybe the damage has piled up a little bit on Pat Barry and he's getting knocked out easier and easier. Yeah, in years past, you could probably make the argument that Pat Barry's biggest problem was that he was too small for heavyweight, and uh, he was probably all along one of these kind of unfortunate tweeners that are too small to compete in this enormous weight gap of the heavyweight division, but at the same time probably would have a hard time cutting all the weight to get down to 205 or even 185 where his his height and reach probably would have uh, played a little bit better. But at this point, you're right. He's got bigger concerns than just being too small for the weight class. He, you know, he's starting to look like a guy who it's kind of scary when he gets, when he gets knocked out. And I don't like, I don't like saying that about guys and I don't like, you know, commenting on so-and-so should retire and walk away and stuff like that. But like, it's, it makes you cringe a little bit to see Pat Barry get knocked unconscious. Uh, not only because it's happened a lot, but, also because he seems like a uh, like a decent hearted human being. Yeah, he really is and you can see that, you know, he he doesn't hold much back. Uh, that the emotions are always right there on his face when he stands there looking like a, you know, a, a four-year-old who's been told that he has to skip dessert tonight after every, every time when he loses. Uh and it's it's hard to see that, man, cuz he does seem like a nice guy and uh to see him keep taking that punishment. I mean, like you, 
we can too easily in this sport just be like, oh, this guy's taking too much. We have decided collectively that he should quit. That's kind of a bullshit thing to do. I think at the very least, though, he's been knocked out twice this year. You might want to take off, take some time off, uh, especially if, you know, that knockout was, as it looked, kind of the, the same kind of shot that would not have phased him that much a few years ago. Well, that's going to do it for listener mail for this week. If you have a question, comment, concern you'd like to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You can go to our website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. As for right now, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, Mark Hunt punched Bigfoot Silva in the face until his hand exploded into a million pieces and then kept right on punching him in the face. Uh, was this 2013's fight of the year? I'm going to say no, but okay. it's up there. I, I think John Jones, Alexander Gustafson is the fight of the year. This, though, was so remarkable in part because who the hell expected Mark Hunt and Bigfoot Silva to be the awesome fight that everybody was talking about the next morning. Nobody, nobody expected that. And in fact, uh, lots of people, including myself had ticketed it for one that was not getting out of the first round. Yeah. Uh, because these two guys would go out there and, and throw hillbilly haymakers at each other until somebody got knocked out. Uh, and you, you would have thought if it does get out of the first round, it's going to be terrible. Yes. You would not have uh, picked this one out as the fight that was going to be the exception to the heavyweight rule where these guys are going to go out and have a, a five round barn burner that gets nothing but better as it goes on. Well, you know, I think one of the the things that uh, I thought was interesting, at, because before earlier in the night, uh, you know, my wife was watching the fights with me, and on account of, of us having a baby, who will sometimes wake up screaming at 4 a.m. Uh, she was really tired, went to bed early, uh, and then I, you know, stayed up, watched the fights, wrote my my story afterwards, went to bed, and the next morning she kind of asked me in passing, "Oh, how were the fights?" And I responded, well, you know, Mark Hunt and Bigfoot Silva had a, had a fucking awesome fight, uh, maybe one of the best of the year. And she follows the sport well enough to know who the both of them are and assumed that I was being sarcastic for a really long time until I had to make the point, no, I'm being totally sincere. These two were the ones who put on an awesome, awesome fight. You just never would guess it because they both seem like, you know, heavyweight weirdos in different ways. Like Mark Hunt is the guy who can take a hell of a shot and can always just knock you out with one big blow, but he's not going to be spectacular. Uh, and Bigfoot Silva is just weird looking for one thing. And the kind of guy who everybody, you know, he wins those fights that they don't really seem to want him to win and just keeps kind of hanging around. And you get those two dudes together and somehow the, the, the alchemy between them uh, produces this. I mean, hard for me to at least if i'm going to put this qualifier on it i can't recall a better heavyweight fight in recent history can you no uh i i can't i actually i was going to say my wife had gone to bed before the bigfoot silva uh mark hunt fight started and i woke her up laughing at mark hunt's son 
after it was over. And Mark Hunt's son <laughs> that was, was awesome. like, I'm not talking. That was awesome. Uh, well, let's That's talk Mark about Hunt's son, all right. Let's talk about the notion of heavyweight weirdos here because, you know, we worry about these guys' brains, which is something that we've talked about the last few weeks, especially. Um, but at the end of the day, I guess we have to reconcile that somehow because if you're a fight fan, you have to at least partially accept that is going to come part and parcel with the sport, right? This is never going to be good for you. And so you kind of have to make peace with that or else you're never going to enjoy any of it. And for this one, for some reason, I was able to just sort of marvel at the spectacle of it all and really just sort of like enjoy it as a good fight. Whereas previous uh, slobber knockers that we've seen recently, like maybe Gilbert Melendez, Diego Sanchez, while it was happening, I was thinking, oh God, what about Diego Sanchez's brain? Um, and maybe it seems like a contradiction that for whatever reason, I was able to just kind of shelve those fears and enjoy this one. Um, but that's honestly how I felt. I would be lying if I, if I didn't, uh, you know, say that that's what was going on in my, in my head as it happened. And, and I, you know, I've seen kind of a lot of that. I think kind of industry wide, we've been able to like enjoy this fight for what it was, even though it was, uh, really violent, really bloody and really sloppy a lot of the time. And are we able to feel that way because of our notion of Mark Hunt and Bigfoot Silva as heavyweight weirdos, I guess, for lack of a better term? You know, I was thinking about that, too. And one of the things that uh, I thought maybe made it a little easier for me, because it is that I, I do watch those fights differently now, uh, having talked to the people who do the brain research. And, and now that we just know more about how uh, you know, physical sports, contact sports can affect your brain over the long run. To me, that's what makes it so that it's kind of even more impressive because you know that when these dudes are still standing there in the fourth and fifth round banging away on each other, they probably both have concussions at that point, right? I mean, how could you not after everything they've been through? And that's also why I'm not going to be the dude who's like, oh, it got sloppy at the end. Well, fuck yeah, it got sloppy. What what kind of technical displays of striking do you expect in the fifth round from two exhausted, bloody, probably concussed dudes? I mean, that, that I think kind of just shows you that how at the end it's, you know, guts and heart and determination. It's not just, you know, skill on skill anymore. And I think that's one of the great things about fighting that you don't always get from other sports is that, uh, it becomes, it descends to this kind of primal level. Uh, and then it keeps going past that. And I think that there there is something awesome about that. There's also something terrible about it. And I think that those two, not only can they coexist, but I think you have to appreciate both aspects of it. Because it's not like we're enjoying this in spite of the violence. I mean, the violence is the, the part that we're enjoying. And right. also the, the, their ability to respond to it. In that same vein, I guess, you know, this fight ends in a majority draw. And I think if the, if any other fight that we've ever watched ended in a majority draw... Uh, people will be lighting up their torches on Twitter and going down to burn down the offices of the Brisbane Athletic Association or whatever. <laughs> whoever, well, yeah. Imagine if uh, judges John Jones and uh, Lusty Gusty had ended in a draw. Right. People even, would have been pissed off. Yeah, exactly. But at this one, you know, it ends in a majority draw, and uh, I know I felt this way about it because I put it on Twitter. But I know other people were saying it too. Most reasonable draw of all time. Like, yeah. Totally fine with it. Totally fine with that being a draw. And I guess here's one of the things I think that made a difference in how I viewed it was that neither one of these guys are going to be title contenders, I don't think. 
I mean, I don't think either one of us see Mark Hunt or Bigfoot Silva, who's already had his shot at it. Uh, we don't see them becoming UFC heavyweight champion. So what are they there for? Well, they're there to put on fun fights and to get paid. Uh, and so for those guys especially, okay, so it's a draw. You don't really know what to do with them after that. Neither one of them really necessarily advances over the other one. They both kind of stay in the same place, like rankings-wise, it seems. But it was an awesome demonstration and performance. So... I think we're fine with that because it's not like it holds up the division or it's not like you know it, it, it robs one of them of, of something they've, they've clearly earned. It just seemed kind of rewarding that, man, neither one of them had to be called a loser that night. Because shit, how do you look at either one of those guys and be like, hey, better luck next time? And, you know, obviously this is a close fight. Scores were all over the place. But uh, most of the ones that I saw, at least floating around before the decision announced, kind of leaned towards Bigfoot Silva. Uh, f- like 48, 47. Um, did Mark Hunt get some home cooking here, uh, even to just get the draw? I think he might have. Uh, I think that you look at two judges who scored the fifth round at 10 8 for Mark Hunt. Uh, yeah, that was, that's what I meant. That, that seems fishy a little bit. You know, it doesn't seem totally ridiculous to me because it se- did seem like Bigfoot was just kind of hanging on trying to get to that fifth round. But I don't see how you can call that a 10-8 for Mark Hunt and not call round four where Bigfoot has Mark Hunt mounted and is just smashing his face open to the point where the ref is standing there just pleading with him to do something, to move, to show that he's still alive under there. And to his credit, you know, when he heard that Mark Hunt did it and it seemed like maybe Bigfoot kind of punched himself out there trying to finish. But I don't know how that's not a 10-8 if what Mark Hunt did in the fifth is a 10-8. And it seems especially because it was the fifth round that those judges could have been looking at their own scorecards and doing the math on how the rounds had already shaken out. And they had to know that if I make this one a 10-8, I'll make it a draw. And, you know, this is a fight that feels like a draw. I'm not so sure that that is worth getting too pissed off about, though, because I don't know if if what we're saying is, hey, these judges who were scoring the last round were taking into account the entire fight when they did it. I don't know. I mean, I feel like we don't encourage them to actually do that with the scoring system that we have. We encourage them to look at it as, you know, five one-round fights rather than one five-round fight. But if that's what they were doing and that's the what they thought was the just outcome, it seems like everybody agrees with them. So I don't know how pissed off we can get there. Uh, with the way that Dana White gushed about this fight afterward and the fight ending in a draw and the unanimous, unanimously good reviews uh, that it's gotten from from everybody except like the most stringent naysayers uh it seems like we're we're gonna do this again it seems like we're gonna have a rematch uh the rematch to me automatically seems less fun i guess just because the first one was so good it 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 first of all there's not it's not gonna be a surprise if the second one is super awesome anymore like we were kind of surprised that the first one was i, I feel like it kind of will though because i mean it would also not be a surprise if the second one turned out to be kind of shitty and nowhere near as good as the first right, right. but now now it has to sort of carry that added burden of of the first one being awesome and maybe the second one is the one where i start to worry about everybody's brains i don't know but like do we need to see this fight again I don't know if we need to see it again, but like we said, we don't know exactly what you'd do with either one of them. So if if the UFC decides to make it again, probably, I guess, in three years, that seems like enough time for them to rest. Uh, good good three-year break after this. Maybe it can be like a, a special uh, anniversary thing that the UFC does where uh, Mark Hunt and Bigfoot Silva beat the shit out of each other, go away for a few years, heal up, and then come back to do it all again. Be like Haley's Comet. 
<laughs> uh, we bagged on the UFC digital distribution network in, in the, in the listener mail portion of the show. But, uh, the, as I was watching this fight, I was wondering like, are, is this, are we going to miss this in the future? Because like, you know, this event started mid morning in Australia, so it could be on primetime in America. Like is Bigfoot Silva versus Mark Hunt going to be the main event of an internet only show if this happens in December, 2014, instead of December, 2013. Uh, and will it be on at like, you know, one o'clock in the afternoon in America and, and no one will pay the 1999 a month or whatever to watch it. Uh, and will we all miss it? Because to me, that seems like a mistake if I'm the UFC. Well, for one thing, I highly doubt that they would put fighters as good and as well known as Mark Hunt and Bigfoot Silva on the digital network, right? Well, they got to do something. They got to put somebody on there, right? They got to have the. I mean, here's the thing: the UFC is going to put somebody as the main event, even on these these shitty cards, aren't they? Or are they just going to be shitty all the way through? Because if they are shitty all the way through, that just backs up my point, man. <laughs> don't don't bug me about them. I'll be at home playing with my kids. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess we'll have to wait and see on that. But I would. To answer your question of what happens, because, I mean, hey, two guys we don't know could go out there and put on an awesome fight. Uh, you know, Just because we haven't heard of them yet doesn't mean that can't happen. Uh, and so if that did happen on, like, you know, 6 a.m. in the one true time zone uh, on the digital network, and you and I, of course, were sleeping soundly uh, and, and not watching that shit. Well, at 6 a.m., I'll be up with my kid, but he'll be at home <laughs> sleeping soundly. Uh, you know, if that happened, I assume we would hear about it. People would say, oh, there was an awesome fight on the digital network, also known as a website. Yeah, uh, website. And then, you know, you could probably go and pay like 99 cents or whatever it is to watch a single fight in the UFC's archive. Um, I don't know. Maybe if the UFC has enough of those, they'll finally convince you to break down and, and buy the subscription to the digital network. Not happening. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number one. Sir Nigel Longstop's stock is here, and he's going to lead us in another game of Master Tweet Theater. And that begins right now. that time again we welcome back to the show friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist sir nigel longstock sir nigel how are you good day to you sir i am pushing wheels like conan i don't understand oh i get it i get it like when he was a boy and he got strong that way mm-hmm. did you come up with that yourself i did on the way over here as i was sliding back and forth through the town merrily crashing into pedestrians and cyclists so you are like literally pushing wheels yes most of the time i have to push my car and then i jump into it once it gets moving and then it it goes where it pleases well i think our listening audience uh knows enough about you to totally believe that for those of you who don't know how this works sir nigel's going to read us off some tweets from some various people in the mma sphere chad and i are going to try and guess who the tweeters in question are uh good time will be had by all so sir nigel uh is there a theme this week well sir the theme is potpourri Meaning that there is no theme? Yes, correct. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, let us begin. Tweet the first. Nothing is impossible. The word itself says, I'm possible. Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> what? What, really? I, I have read it as written, sir, and it brought me great joy. Did you do any research to see if that's actually an Audrey Hepburn quote? I presume it is not. No, it's this thing that seems to float around the internet attributed to her, Buckminster Fuller. Aha. Uh-huh. All right. You, you've given away what I'm going to consider a clue. Hmm. Chad, who do we know who loves to send out tweets that are quotes that they clearly haven't really done the uh, the core reading on to be sure if they're real and really just 
get all their information from Facebook. That's right. I'm going to say UFC ring girl, Ariane, Celeste, Benchimol, Lopez, Concepcion, Edward James Almos. See, that's, that's what I was going to guess too. But then as you were talking, I started to think, you know what? Uh-oh. Sir Nigel recently has been pulling a fast one on us by coming in here with another MMA person who also apparently likes to tweet out inspirational stuff. So I'm going to go with Master Tweet Theater newcomer, Randy Couture. Yeah, that's not a bad guess. Both fine guesses, both alarmingly grounded in deduction, and both wrong. Ah! It is Rich Franklin. God damn it. (laughs) Nothing is impossible, you guys. Well, Rich Franklin, it seems more and more, is kind of like a, a poor man's Randy Couture for the purposes of Master Tweet Theater. Yeah, Sir Nigel seems to have a weird Rich Franklin hard-on. Well, now that Sean McCorkle's banned for life, I guess you got to do something, right? I would like to make it clear that my interest in Rich Franklin is non-sexual. <laughs> well, yeah, but you know, it sounds... I, I just like to note that it sounds like Rich Franklin is doing better, because... yeah, Sir Nigel really threw him under the bus a few weeks ago. Yeah, and, he was uh, having some problems with his juice bar. No, I, I think it was all just speculative the whole time. <laughs> okay. I have been speculating on Rich Franklin. <laughs> <clears throat> Tweet this second. In Tough Nuff yesterday with my good friend Jeff. Great fights, the best amateur event in Wound. Let's go, brother! FB me. What? What was the end there? FB me. I believe is a truncated link of some uh, kind. All caps, I'm assuming? Uh, no, although sporadic use of caps throughout. Okay. And it was uh, Tough Enough was the event? Yes, Tough Enough. Tough Enough. Right. Uh, so, sounds uh, like Nevada we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to say Martin Cantman. Hmm. Wow, that's an offbeat choice. Las Vegas local Martin Cantman. You know, I know Dana White has gone to the Tough Enough before, and the the writing here, uh, or maybe just the shouting done by Sir Nigel, leads me down that path. The thing about going with his friend Jeff doesn't seem very Dana White. Uh, oh, fuck it. I'm going to go UFC president Dana White. Maybe his friend Jeff is like Jeff Buckley or something. Yeah, maybe it's Jeff Bezos. There you go. Huh. Amazon.com founder Jeff Bezos, I believe. Both wrong! Ah! As usual, it is Wanderlei Vanderlei Silva. Well, that's tricky. That is tricky. Yes. Hmm. Well, tweet the third. <laughs> <clears throat> Phil, you're trying to talk your way into a fight, and I'm ignoring you because you're irrelevant. Well, that's a softball. That's a softball there. That's Ben Askren. Yeah, especially if you saw his appearance on the MMA Hour. That is, in fact, Ben Askren. It is. It is Ben Askren. I was hoping to make you guys feel better with an easy one. Man, fuck you. Yeah, and fuck your potpourri, too. Yeah, don't patronize us. Well, well, well. Your feelings (laughs) will matter that much less to me in the future. (laughs) Mm. Tweet the fourth. The other thing about Parash is he calls and asks for the toughest fights. Hashtag respect. Okay. Well, it would make sense if that were Ryan Bader, because he would think of himself as the toughest fight that you could ask for. Um, okay. I, rather than overthink it, I'm just going to say Ryan Bader. Even though, I don't even know if he's on Twitter. Uh, I guess I'm going to go Australian fighter... Showing, trying to show respect for Anthony Parash, uh, George Sotteropoulos, I guess. That's just, I don't know. Okay, not bad. Both fine guesses, both somewhat arbitrary, and both wrong. It is Dana White. 
Dana oh, really? White speaking before Anthony Parash was erased like an etch a sketch. <laughs> well, I I'm gonna fault the rather subdued reading there. I assume there's like four exclamation points in You know, there are three. <laughs> no, that is <laughs> bullshit, man. I didn't quite notice them. They were crammed in with the hashtag. Wow, that's hmm. crap. Tweet the fifth. And let me tell you, this was a hard one to select from a busy week. Tweet the fifth. I don't believe in unicorns anymore. That's it? That's it. Well, damn it, I guess I'm I guess I'm just gonna say poet Philip Baroni oh, and be I, done with it. I was gonna say poet Philip Baroni. You can still say it. I'm gonna go poet Philip Baroni making a triumphant return to uh to Master Tweet Theater. Not only in his own tweet, but also a tweet mentioned by someone else. Yeah. It is. It is the poet Philip Maroney. Uh, he also tweeted a uh, picture of like six girls' vaginas. What? Um, <laughs> with a uh, directed at Ben Askren, and it said oh. "you." So was it like it one? You, well, that is the height of comedy, right there. <laughs> was it like one picture of six vaginas or six different pictures? No, I believe it was taken at the Glitter Gulch, uh, and he had gotten several of the girls to create a sort of pyramid, which, when viewed from the back appeared to be a pyramid of vaginas. Huh. They were not wearing pants, these girls, at the Glitter Gulch. Lest Ben Askren be confused what that was supposed to indicate, Phil Baroni went on ahead and helped him out there. You, Ben Askren, (laughs) a vagina. You are a pyramid of vaginas. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which, you know, that sounds like pretty much the best day of Phil Baroni's life right there. Well, Sir Nigel, I guess that wraps up another Master Tweet Theater. What do you got going on? You know, it's funny you should ask, sir. Isn't it? Yes. I've recently begun filming a uh, a wonderful story about a washed-up boxer who gradually alienates everyone in his life and has sex with Susan Sarandon. And what's it called? It's called Raging Bull Durham. And what role do you play? I play young Susan Sarandon. <laughs> well... That was Master Tweet Theater, and that was Sir Nigel Longstock. Good day to you, sir. Chad, on the undercard of Fight Night 33, Mauricio Shogun Hua. Hua. He of pride, fame, and of up and down fortunes in the UFC, knocked out James Tahuna with a single left hook that sent the man spiraling into the land of wind and ghosts. Just looked like he'd been in a car wreck. It was like the missing frames from the Zapruder film. (laughs) Back and to the left? Yes. Yeah. Uh, And then, thankfully kind of whiffed on a follow-up right hand that seemed like it could have just squished James Tahuna's skull. Yes. Just flatten it out yes. right there on the, on the mat. So, I guess we have to ask this question. Shogun goes out there, knocks somebody out with a single blow. Is Shogun Hua back? Well, it was a fun performance, man. I don't think you can underestimate that. I think that an unexpected knockout at an unexpected time is is a a real good way to 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 stoke the fires for the for your fans out there and to kind of goose the entire uh fan base into getting a little bit more excited about you and and hell before this fight happened a lot of people were talking about how this was the end of the road for Shogun Hua we were already uh we were already starting his retirement fund um you know writing uh, uh elegies for his for his career so in one way Shogun Hua went out there and 
maybe proved that he is not quite as near to the end as we had assumed, but only because we had assumed that the end was nigh. I mean, uh, let's skip the hyperbole here. I don't think that it's true, and I think that it's a little bit cynical for us to uh, to try to prop Shogun Hua up so that we can tear him down the next time that the facts come around to meet the narrative that we want uh, to, to advance. I mean, Shogun Hua is not back, and he's not coming back. He's not going to be the guy that he was in pride when he was one of the most feared uh, light heavyweight fighters in the world, or middleweight, as they called it over there across the pond. Uh, that's not going to happen again, because the guy's knees are still shot. He's still, you know, three or four knee surgeries deep. Uh, he's, he's still, I don't think really probably able to train with the intensity that he used to. And, you know, he's, he's not as feared as he once was. So you're not going to get back to the days of Shogun Hua being the top 200 pound pound fight, 205 pound fighter in the world, probably ever again. Uh, and, and it's, it's disingenuous, I think for us to buy into, uh, uh, a storyline that that is what's going on at the same time, good performance for him. And, uh, he gets to keep going for a little bit longer. So I think that that is a small victory in and of itself. Well, I think maybe we should define what we mean when we say, is he back? Well, I think that there's only one thing that you can mean. I mean, the word back implies that he has reclaimed his former glory. Well, I don't know if he needs Unless to... Unless you just mean he's back from retirement, when, yeah, at which point, he's, yeah, he is, I guess. He, he's back from the, the edge of the abyss and has now moved like a foot and a half away from the abyss. Uh, so, that yeah, he could not be knocked back into it with one single blow. It would take at least two. Uh, I think that's kind of what we mean or what we should mean if we talk about him being back here. Because what did he prove here? I mean, he was, the fight went a minute and three seconds, so we didn't get to see a whole hell of a lot of him. Uh, there was talk beforehand that maybe he hadn't looked great in training and hadn't been healthy enough to really get after it. We wouldn't know because he went out there, waited for James Tahuna to come lunging in there, hammered him with one perfectly placed and perfectly timed left hook, and that was it. James Tahuna, you know, is... is yeah. unplugged at that point, falls to, to the mat lifelessly, and and that's all we saw. I mean, and that's it's easy to look at that and say, okay, there's there's that old Shogun, and I think that that is probably going to be the last thing to go for him, is that, that punching power and that ferocity in short bursts anyway. Uh, so, does he still have that? Yeah, he does. Does I don't think anybody out there is saying that we need to see a, a Shogun who a John Jones rematch on account of that, though. No, and I mean, some of it maybe was that... Not us per se, but like uh, some some organizations, I guess the UFC itself, chief among them, were probably guilty of propping up James Tahuna maybe a little bit more than they should have on the, I think both uh, quote unquote analysts on the pre-fight show picked James Tahuna to beat Shogun. Rashad Evans said he thought uh, Tahuna was about to be reborn as a top 10 light heavyweight after he goes out there and has a statement victory against Shogun Hua. But like when you look at it, like Shogun or James Tahuna has never really beat anybody of tremendous substance in the UFC. He's never beat a, a top ten fighter for sure. Uh, his previous octagon victories are Ryan Jimmo, uh, Joey Beltran, Aaron Rosa, Ricardo Romero, and uh, Igor Prokrajak. Prokrajak no, nailed it. Uh, and then you know he came, he lost already to Alexander Gustafson in, in his second UFC fight, and he rolled into this one directly off the heels of a loss to Glover Tashira. So, like, I don't know, man. Uh, uh, Shogun Hua knocked out James Tahuna, but if Shogun Hua had done that five, six years ago, 
it wouldn't really be a story. We would just be like, oh, well, of course Shogun Hua knocked this guy out in the first round. Yeah, I, I interpreted uh, people picking Tahuna as a vote against Shogun Hua, uh, kind of a an acknowledgement uh, that Shogun Hua is starting to show the years and the mileage now. Um, but, you know, still, you go lunging in at a guy like Shogun Hua like that, he can make you pay. And it seems like, you know, we get into the situation with guys like him, and I think Vanderlei is on that list as well, probably both Nogueras, where... Uh, it feels like we're almost just hoping that they'll lose a few in a row quickly so that then we can get it over with because it almost seems worse to string it out like this. You got Dana White talking about, hey, he's either got to go down to middle way to retire uh, if he loses after this, which I don't know why you think that he it would necessarily be a better thing for this, you know, beaten up, broken down man in his 30s to start cutting a bunch of weight. Right. Uh, but it seems almost like. It's, in a way, a bad thing for dudes like that, Vandalay Silva too, um, when they come back with a huge win, because then that makes them feel like, I'm reborn in the fight game. I See, all these people wrote me off too soon. I'm going to be in this for a while. If you lost three or four in a row, you might be forced to face it sooner. If you win one, you know, if you lose two, win one, lose two, uh, and win one, then you might be encouraged to stick around a lot longer than you should. Yeah, and I mean, simply from a physical standpoint, I feel like it does makes sense for Shogun to go to 185 because he's a pretty small light heavyweight um, and ha- has always been. And maybe now that his his skills have deteriorated a little bit and his mobility has deteriorated, I feel like if he did want to carry on, which, like you said, I'm not sure that that's the best option for him, but I do feel like if he could make it to 185, uh, knees and all, that, that that probably would be a slightly better place for him. But I do agree with you that you know if you take a more realistic approach a more holistic approach i guess to what's actually going on here it does seem like kind of a bummer deal to imply that uh, an aging fighter who may or may not be on his last legs tried to like uh you know re- reinvent himself at a lower weight class because it does just probably convince him to go on longer and absorb more punishment however you know uh in the if you follow the lead of leota machida he was able to go down there and and immediately appear to become a factor although he's not quite uh, as far down the road as, as Shogun is. Yeah, especially not physically. I mean, Lyoto Machida has not taken the physical punishment that, that Shogun has, uh, so it doesn't really seem like a, a perfect comparison there. Uh, but, you know, you, you mentioned before about what are we supposed to make of the win given James Tahuna's standing, right? Uh, I mean, I, I would say even if you take that aspect of it away, the the nature of one-punch one knockouts and MMA like that, I think you could make that argument if you look at Anybody, basically, in the top 10 or top 15. You land one great left hook and knock him out, great. We always knew you could do that. What we don't know is can you win around, Can you win, still win a fight in round two these days? Or can you still win against somebody who can take you down? And I still think that you know we hadn't seen anything that should make anybody change their minds about that. All right, well, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to uh, round number three. Ben, what is your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Well, Chad, as I'm sure you saw also on the undercard of Fight Night 33, uh, Ryan Bader just jumped all up and down on Anthony Parosh's head for about three rounds yeah. uh, until it looked like he was pretty much going to decapitate the guy. Yeah. Uh, really ugly and incredibly bloody fight where Parosh proved that he can take an ass whipping and not a whole lot else. Then the scores are read. Nobody's surprised to hear Ryan Bader, the winner by unanimous decision victory. However, two of the judges scored at 30-27 for Ryan Bader, meaning 
10-9 rounds all across the board for Ryan Bader, meaning basically the same kind of scores that Kyle Magelhase uh, got for holding down Nick Ring in the two rounds that he won when he won 29-28 across the board. This is exactly the kind of shit I'm talking about, man, with the judges. How is a 10-9 in one fight where a guy barely wins the round the same as a, a round where Ryan Bader damn near kills Anthony Perosh and did it in every single round of that fight? And you're telling me that's still a 10-9 across the board? Are you fucking kidding me, judges? How can you not understand that that's why you can do more than just 10-9? There are other number combinations you can put together to reflect one man's dominance. This is the problem with the scoring system. It's not that the 10-point must system can't work. It's that these motherfuckers don't know how to use it. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Well, Ben, I realize that it's probably low-hanging fruit at this point, but this week my are you fucking kidding me must go out to Australian journalist Phil Buzz Rothfield, who penned an article entitled UFC is a bloody disgrace uh, for the Australian Daily Telegraph newspaper. Um, you know, I don't think that we need to dwell on it too much because it's just another dinosaur newspaper man taking an unwarranted shot at MMA. And by the way, if you want to paint yourself as a guy who may or may not have a place in modern life, I think going with the nickname Buzz is a is a solid way to do it. Yeah. Uh, but you know, he, he called MMA a disgrace and called it thuggery and called it a bashathon, which, which actually is kind of cool. I actually, I might actually steal that. Yeah. Uh, uh, but you know, just taking a look at the titles of the other stories on Buzz Rothfield's blog revealed such titles as 62 reasons why the world cup is a joke and world cup horror and boozy refs in sin bin. So I think after looking at those headlines, it's clear that Buzz Rothfield is a man of substance whose opinion needs to be taken seriously. Are you fucking kidding me, Phil Rothfield? You get paid for this? This is some examiner.com type bullshit. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? I do want to read that thing about boozy refs, though. Yeah, they're in the sin bin. Oh, no. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Ben, there's a lot going on at Saturday's UFC on Fox 9. Uh, probably too much to really talk about in a single round, but who knew that we were going to have to spend an entire round talking about Bigfoot Silva and Mark Hunt? Seriously, if you had told us that last week, we would have kicked you in the nuts. <laughs> For starters, uh, a lot of people are going to be saving some gas money at this card because the event takes place at Sacramento's Sleep, t- sleep Train Arena. Uh, So that's going to be fun for the jokes if this turns out to be kind of a boring event. Nothing gets you pumped up like a fight at the sleep train arena. So the UFC went ahead and stocked this bad boy with team alpha male fighters. Uh, This will be the second time that we've seen Joseph Benavidez fight Demetrius Johnson for the flyweight title. My opening question for you is, is the second time going to be the right time for Joe B.? You know, it's tough to pick against uh, Demetrius Johnson, especially as good as he's looked lately. But if, if the alpha male guys collectively have ever looked any better, I haven't seen it. I mean, we've all seen how 
bringing Dwayne Ludwig in as a coach there seems to have made them all a lot better, and a lot of them were really good to begin with. Uh, and Benavidez is one of those guys. I mean, I think that the thing Benavidez has going for him here is that if somebody finishes the fight, it's likely to be Benavidez. Uh, and the thing Johnson has going for him is he's really, really good at only engaging on his terms and therefore doesn't make a whole lot of mistakes where he gives you openings to really hit him. But I, th- I do think that having seen that style once already, uh, I think that helps Joseph Benavidez more than it helps Johnson, uh, who is probably going to come in and look to do more or less the same thing he did the first time, whereas Benavidez now has a little bit better idea of, of how it's going to go. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I might be influenced in part by the fact that I like Benavidez. He's, he's a really likable, funny guy. Um, but uh, if I had to pick here, I, I'd pick him. Yeah, we've talked about on the show before, but Demetrius Johnson at times reminds me of a of a Frankie Edgar or, or Ben Henderson style guy whose style just sort of naturally results in these really close uh, decisions that that you feel like could go either way. And you know, as we've said before on the show, I think if if you do that, eventually you're going to lose one, even if you're the right. champion. Um, and this is really kind of a do or die spot for Benavidez because you know he has already come down from bantamweight, where uh, he was a good fighter, but but lost to Dominic Cruz, and then comes down and, and cuts to 125, and has already lost once to me to Demetrius Johnson there. Uh, you know, if he loses this championship opportunity, I, I don't know where he really goes from here. So for Benavidez, this is one that, that you really, really want to pick up uh, just for the sake of the future of, of your, your options. Uh, and also maybe for the flyweight division, because if Demetrius Johnson beats Joseph Benavidez, I don't know where you really go from there. Yeah. Whereas having a new champ might actually open up some uh, some new possibilities for the world championship. That's right. Uh, Pretty excited in, about the world championship. In a much larger, big picture kind of way, you talked about Team Alpha Male bringing Bang Ludwig in as the as the head coach, uh, which is frankly is kind of a, an unorthodox move in this sport. I don't know that we've really heard about that sort of situation happening before, but they've been super successful since they've done that, and there has been a lot written about their success now that that Dwayne Ludwig is there. Uh, this is going to be a good uh, litmus test, I guess, for that storyline, since pretty much every team alpha male fighter that we've heard of is fighting on this card. Uh, if they come out and go 4-0 and or 3-1, and then it's going to seem you know, like everybody was on the right track, giving Dwayne Ludwig a lot of credit for, uh, for kind of uh, not turning the team around because they were always really good, but just sort of like putting the icing on top of the foundation that they had already built. Uh, if they don't do as well, maybe that we have cause to, uh, to question that public trope that that Dwayne Ludwig is is a, some kind of voodoo miracle worker. Well yeah, granted there aren't a whole lot of gimmies for team alpha male here. They're all in pretty tough fights. I mean, I think the if you had to pick a, a team alpha male lock on this one it would be Chad Mendez over right. Nick Lentz, right? Uh the Carney, who I know is your guy. I know you're your big Nick Lentz guy. Uh, but the other, like, you know, Uriah Faber against Michael McDonald, that's a tough fight for Faber. You know, it's a tough fight for both of them. Uh, so it's not as if uh, the Team Alpha male guys, just because they're in their own backyard, are getting the Brazil treatment uh, where we're bringing in a bunch of dudes who you can bash and then, you're, you know, your fans can shout you're going to die and throw beers. Uh, these are going to be some tough fights. Uh, and, you know, I don't know if we should read too much into if, you know, if they don't win them all, then it means suddenly uh, Dwayne Ludwig was overrated as a coach. Uh, but it will be interesting to see them all kind of stacked up there next to each other uh, on one night. Uh, and I, they've done that somewhat before. I think uh, Mendavita Shaw 
uh, was the last time when three of them fought on the same card. And that seems to work really well for them because when everybody – and you hear this from a lot of gyms. When everybody is working for the same date, it's not so much of an issue of who's – are there going to be enough people at practice today to spar with? Is everybody as focused as I am? Is, is – you know – Am I the only one who's in the working hard mode and everybody else is in the hanging around, do a little bit of training and then hit the strip club for the lunch buffet mode? Uh, by the way, it's a terrible idea. You shouldn't eat at the strip club. Uh, when you're all in the same card like this, it takes away a lot of that and I think it helps everybody all the way around. Uh, obviously, we had kind of a bummer of a situation here within the last week where uh, the co-main event of this card was supposed to be Carlos Condit taking on the immortal one, Matt Brown. But unfortunately, Matt Brown had to pull out with a uh, herniated disc. Okay, there we go. A couple back, herniated discs. Back injury. Um, I know that that well, was best fight on the card, too. Yeah, it was the it was the people's main event. Yeah, it was. Well, you know, we shouldn't be surprised that the co-main event is often the best fight on the card. <laughs> no, we shouldn't. Uh, but I know a lot of people were looking forward to that. And you know why I'm really pissed off about yeah, it, Yeah, I was right? just going to say, you got screwed. I uh, had a Sunday lifestyle piece on Matt Brown. lifestyle piece on All Matt Brown. queued up, ready to go on Sunday. Had a really good interview with him. All ready to go on that one. And then, bang. I lose it. So it seems like maybe you wrote it already because I know this was a newspaper I wrote, piece. I right? wrote some of it. No, this was just going to be a, a website piece. Oh, but, okay. As um, I was going to say, we could probably blame you if you went ahead and wrote it in advance because – Yeah, like I'd do that. That's the kind of shit you get yourself into when you start writing stuff in advance. Yeah, don't worry. Don't worry about me writing stuff too far in advance and uh, ahead of the deadline because I'm going to be sliding in right there at the deadline. <laughs> but um, I'm, what I'm saying is I think that we should all just stop and recognize that I'm the real victim here. Well, and all reports are that we're going to get Carlos Condit against uh, Matt Brown somewhere down the road. Uh, as it turned out, they have ceded the co-main event spot to Uriah Faber against Michael McDonald, uh, a bantamweight fight that obviously has some title implications as soon as uh, Henan Barrow and Dominic Cruz settle their business next February. Uh, at the same time, it's a little bit of a, of a strange uh, bantamweight title eliminator. I don't know if you fully want to call it that just because – both Uriah Faber and Michael McDonald have already lost uh, to Henan Barrow. Um, I suppose if if Michael McDonald beats Faber and Dominic Cruz beats Barrow, then yeah, Dominic Cruz against Michael McDonald is is the obvious fight. And I mean, I guess you're just gonna have Uriah Faber hanging around in the title picture because he's Uriah Faber. He's won three in a row now. Um, uh, but but it, it, you know, all rem removed from all that, seems like a pretty cool fight to me. I think it's gonna be very competitive. It's from two guys that that. Uh, both uh, can can stop you. Both guys are well rounded, and and both guys are going to come out there with with a high octane motor. Uh, and and you know, frankly, it's one I'm looking forward to at this point. So all is not lost just because Matt Brown's back turned out not to be quite as immortal as the nickname <laughs> might imply. Although we did hear uh, from a at least one listener mail question came from somebody, uh, one of the CME listeners who has tickets to this. Yeah, uh, and was kind of feeling like maybe wasn't worth it after losing the the Matt Brown Carlos Condit fight, which I can't say like I, that I don't see that point. You know, fight card subject to change, man. Sometimes some really, really depressing change after you've already given them your money. Yeah, well, that's why one of MMA's dirty little secrets, well, it's one, it's one of MMA's least dirty little secrets. It's actually one of the cleaner secrets <laughs> that the sport has, but, man, sport's better on TV, man. It really is. Like, if you, if you can get uh, really, really close ringside seats and you've never been before and you just want to feel the energy in the building, we always say, make sure you go at least one time to see it live. But if you've been to a few of them, you start to realize 
This is a sport that lends itself really well to television and yeah. not necessarily to the to the live viewing experience because two guys fighting in a cage where you got 300-pound uh, camera guys standing on boxes in front of every uh, ring post, there's some uh, obscured viewing that can go on. Yeah, there's something to be said for the home viewing experience. Uh, by the way, a note on Michael McDonald. Uh, do you know that he's been like celibate for like three years? I found out about that the day after I interviewed Michael McDonald last week, and I thought to myself, "God damn it! I wish I would have known that." But then it, you'd have spent the entire interview. Yeah, we on just it. would have talked about. We just would have talked about that. He he would have been trying to transition back to talking about your eye favor, and you'd been like, "Okay, wait. So what about oral? <laughs> Are you down with that?" Oh, that's gross. You just made me feel super gross. What about okay, okay, uh, Michael? One last question. You know, not to dwell on it or anything, but uh, say you're dry humping a girl, right? And accidentally, you know what I'm saying? Does that count? All right. Well, that's probably as good a note to Michael. End what's the on wet dream situation any. like? Uh, that's gonna do it for the co-main event podcast for this but week. We, we didn't do just saying stuff. You just threw me off my game. You know what? I don't know if you even deserve to do just saying stuff after the <laughs> bullshit you just pulled. <laughs> oh, come on. Like, like you weren't thinking all that same stuff. <laughs> What's your just saying stuff for this week, Ben, you fucking pervert? <laughs> well, Chad, I'm just saying that you know, soon after Fight Night 33, the, the main event had concluded, and we were all basking in how great it was. Dana White apparently went straight to ESPN to check and see if you know the worldwide leader was going to discuss it. Let me guess. No. Well, he was initially encouraged uh, because he saw the little thing, the little side menu on SportsCenter that tells you what they're doing next, what's what's coming up next. He tweeted, watching at ESPN at SportsCenter and quote-unquote draw results just popped up on what's coming up. It's got to be Mark Hunt versus Bigfoot. It's just three exclamation points, and I gave it the, the expression it deserved. Uh, but of course, <laughs> very soon after he sent out that tweet, he was reminded by several of his followers that the 2014 World Cup draws had been announced that same day. So, yeah, maybe he got a little ahead of himself on that. Uh, but, Chad, I'm just saying, you know how Dana White sometimes says that, hey, we live in this bubble of arm bars and spinning head kicks, and you know we think that this stuff is more widespread and accepted than it is, and everybody gets it the same way we do? Well, this seems like a pretty good reminder that he might be right, because I admit that when I saw his tweet that uh, next up on SportsCenter was draw results, my first thought, too, was, well, yeah, what else could it be? It's got to be Mark Hunt versus Bigfoot, right? Or it could be the world's actual most popular sport that I couldn't follow even if I wanted to because there's a UFC event every weekend. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, Ben, I'm just saying this week, I know that we talked about it during Master Tweet Theater, and you, and you talked about it during your Are You Fucking Kidding Me about it, the scores of the fight. Uh and I know that Anthony Parash requested his fight with Ryan Bader this weekend. But so tough. you got to respect that. At some point, man, doesn't somebody need to step in to protect a headstrong 41-year-old man from himself? It's like if your crotchety grandfather is insistent on getting the ladder out of the garage so he can go up and hang his own Christmas lights. At some point, somebody has to be like, ah, you know, maybe we'll call somebody for that this year or just get a an able-bodied young fella to get up there and hang the Christmas lights because this looked like Ryan Bader went into a TGI Fridays and just started punching old dudes. <laughs> it was just turn you off to the sport kind of bad. Uh, and in fact, let me say this. If Phil Rothfield had written his entire column only about Bader versus Parash, I probably would have been like, yeah, okay, man. Might have had a hard time arguing with him. You right. 
Way to go, Buzz. I'm just saying. Anyway, that's going to do it this week for the co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to uh, break down what happened at UFC Fox, UFC on Fox 9. And shit, we'll probably start to look ahead to uh, the end of the month and uh, UFC 168. Well, I hear there's a couple of fights that people might be interested in. As for right now, we're done. We're through. We're out. No, I'm just, I'm not trying to be a weirdo about it. All, all I'm saying to you is that Michael McDonald is 22 years old, man. This is some prime time. And he's missing years it. years old and a professional fighter. I know. Fighting on TV. Man, he's going to look back on these years, these celibacy years, and just kick himself. I'm telling you. And these are the years when you should.